Trigger warning. This podcast discusses themes centered around emotional, physical, and sexual violence. While the stories of the survivors are meant to be inspiring and informative, listener discretion is advised. If you are struggling with any of the aforementioned issues, links to resources can be found in the show notes of today's episode. They use people around them for a purpose, right? So if you look at who surrounds a narcissist, right? They have like an army of people and every person in their 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 army has a distinct purpose. And so they enable them by giving them whatever it is that the narcissist needs at any given moment. When they don't need something from that person, they don't exist in a sense. They're kind of interchangeable objects. So just by getting what they need from them, they're enabling them, but they may not even... They, they don't, the problem is they don't even realize it most of the time. And so that's, that's the issue. Hi, Survivors. I'm Tara Newell. And I'm Collier Landry. And this is the Survivor Squad Podcast. Yay, another episode. Another episode, Tara. Look at this. I'm really excited about today's guest. I know, right? She's, she's pretty fabulous. So am I. She's So are you? Amazing. Yeah, absolutely. I was, I was following her on Instagram before, too. Oh yeah, no. Oh, I might. I thought you meant like you're fabulous, Collier. No, I didn't mean that at all. No. Oh well, that's <laughs> great. You can always think you're fabulous. You oh know? well, thanks so much. That's so kind of you. So today's guest is Dr. Jamie Zuckerman, and she is a nationally known expert on narcissism. She's a narcissistic abuse relationship coach and licensed clinical psychologist. She's known on Instagram as Dr. Z. Dr. Z works with people nationwide, helping them understand the complexities of narcissistic relationships, providing tools to navigate these dynamics, and offering customized behavior plans to help her clients make healthy choices and to get where they want to be. I love it. And then you make some great jokes with her about a certain shop. A certain shop? Yeah, like a pizza shop, right? Or is it No, cheesesteaks. No, it's about cheesesteaks. Okay. That's funny. No, as, well, because she's, she, her practice is based in Bryn Mawr, Pennsylvania, which I was born at Bryn Mawr Hospital. And my whole family is from the Lower Marion area, which is where Kobe Bryant is most famously from. You know, you got to ask people in Philadelphia, what is your favorite cheesesteak? Who makes the best cheesesteak? And is it, is it Pat's or Gino's? There's, there's two places and it's a war, which she, you know, discusses in the episode. It's funny. Well, I'm excited to get into it and hear her answer. Yeah, absolutely. Let's get into it. Thank you so much for coming on today. We're really happy to have you on. I know that we connected over Zoom before any of this, and I just wanted to connect and say hi. And it was funny because Collier already knew about you. We've seen you on Instagram. And so why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, Well, thank you for having me, and I'm glad we connected. Uh, My name is Jamie Zuckerman. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist based in Philadelphia. I have a private practice in a suburb outside of Philadelphia. I see patients with depression and anxiety, but um, my specialty is in narcissistic abuse and working with people who are either currently in, trying to get out, um, or on the other side of a narcissistic relationship, whether that's 
a significant other or a parent or a sibling um, or even a friend and trying to work with them um, through post-separation abuse and deal with um, you know, the trauma of being in a relationship like that. As I told you, I'm, I was born in Bryn Mawr Hospital, which you said is five minutes from you. So where is your suburb at? So I'm in Gladwin and my practice is in Ardmore. My grandparents had a house in Ardmore. That's so fun. It's such a small world. <laughs> it's such a small world. Such a small world. I know that there's a lot of questions our, our listeners are dying to know, but I, I would personally like to know, is it Geno's or Pat's? I'm going to have to say Geno's. Yeah? Did I just lose you listeners? that's funny yeah uh, that's funny wait what is this for the people that don't know (laughs) it's the ongoing battle of the two cheesesteak places that you can go to in philly it's either gino's or pat's and 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 there's brand a lot of brand loyalty so you have to be careful who you ask and what you say (laughs) it is a serious point of uh contention it is for there's a place called Eagle Pizza, which was um, in Mainline. Yeah. And my grandfather used to take me there. So that every time I would go back in the summer, we would get cheesesteaks from Eagle Pizza, which I really love. They had provolone. I'm not a whiz. Oh, you got to get the whiz. Oh, no. I can't do that. <gasps> whiz with? Yeah, it's so good. You don't like the, the orange cheese? <laughs> no, I don't. It's gross. <laughs> My mother didn't like it. It's a, it's a whole thing. It's a whole thing. Well, thank you for sharing that. No, you did not lose us listeners. But, but <laughs> my mother was a Pats and my dad was Geno's. So there, it's, so it's, it's, it's interesting. You sort of rose to prominence during the, the pandemic. Is that when you saw a heightened sort of awareness of this? Yeah. So um, it, I had always specialized in it, but the... the um, the response, particularly during COVID, I actually saw it specifically when like th- the actual lockdowns happened. That's when I saw things really increase. Um, you know, and I remember watching, I remember vividly, I was watching something on TV and they had um, somebody from the school board address the community saying that, you know, interestingly, rates of child abuse have gone down. And I'm sitting there, I'm like, no, that's because it's not being reported. Like, it was so mind numbing to me. And I remember from that moment, I was like, I wonder if, I wonder what's going to happen as far as, you know, domestic violence rates, because nobody can leave their house. Substance abuse is on the rise. People are losing jobs. Everybody's financially stressed. People are dying. People are sick. There were every stressor possible, like the top five stressors everybody's experiencing on top of everything else that they're dealing with. And that's exactly what happens. I think what, what, what ended up being the case was people couldn't, people didn't have that social outlet anymore. For some people who are in these types of relationships in particular, even going to work or going to the market, it's a break. You know, some people take naps in their cars because they're not allowed to sleep at home. I mean, all of these things that people don't think about were taken away from them. And so they really kind of flocked to social media as that outlet and people started sharing stories. Um, I think one of the biggest things that came out of this kind of, you know, um, huge awareness that happened, at least from my end of things, was survivors sharing stories. And I think that it was done before, but I really think during the pandemic, something shifted and people just started. I mean, the support that I saw was phenomenal and, and 
I always say this, you could, you could be in all the therapy in the world and all the medications in the world, but I really think to some extent survivor stories are some of the best things that that people can, can use to, you know, kind of on their journey. And so I saw a lot of that. Um, and then people just started asking me questions and just started messaging me and they were really seeking information, you know, just general information. Um, and so I really kind of made an effort to, to really push that during the pandemic because there was such a need for it. And uh, especially, you know, now narcissism, which is a whole other issue being a buzzword and kind of losing its its meaning. It really was a time to, to educate people and bring awareness to that because now we have this huge platform to do it. Whereas before it was there, but it wasn't as, wasn't as out. Um, so I think that's kind of what happened during the pandemic and it really hasn't slowed down. I know for me, during that time, I was even scared to call the cops over certain things. Like, say, um, this girl literally got taken from my apartment complex, the garage, the parking garage, and then driven to separate locations and, like, trigger warning. She got raped over and over again and then driven back to the same location. And, I mean, I remember my car getting broken into not really being able to call about that because when you called, you couldn't get an answer sometimes. Do you think that this was a common thing with the women suffering from narcissistic abuse and actual, you know, domestic violence? I think that one, I think people were scared to call as they often are, but I think there was this, it's almost as if, you know, a lot of times, you know, and I'm sure you guys have, 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 you know, talked about this multiple times on here, but a lot of times survivors and the abuse that they experience, they really do a good job of, of making it not a big deal at times and invalidating it in their own minds and saying, well, people have it worse, right? Well, you know, they didn't hit me. So this one has it worse or, you know, whatever the case may be. And so I think there was a lot of that. And I think that, People, this is just would be my assumption that people were saying, well, people are dying. There's a pandemic. You know, I don't, I don't want to put this added stress on my community, on my, you know, my loved ones because they just lost their job. And, you know, I, I really think there was, there was that. I think there was fear. And I think truth be told, I mean, emergency rooms were, you know, packed with COVID patients, we forgot that there's still all the normal emergencies that go on even without a pandemic. You know, people still break legs. People still have heart attacks. People still go in for, you know, domestic violence, right? And so I think that, I think that it was a combination of factors. Um, I wouldn't, I don't think it's just one, but I do think resources for sure were, were depleted without question. I mean, I know frontline workers were, were, they're, they're still, I mean, they're, they were traumatized. They were burnt out. All mental health providers were burnt out. And I think a lot of times people probably didn't want to add stress. I think that's kind of the, the thought process that a lot of people have. Yeah. But that's very common in domestic exactly. violence and anyone that deals with this type of abuse. Oh, I don't want to be a burden. Exactly. I could just envision in, in my sort of situation growing up where school was like a a respite for me, right? Yeah. Like I could, I could, I, that was my safety zone. Yes. I just remember thinking like, there's so many kids that have dealt with this. I mean, you just said something I didn't even think about be, not being able to sleep at home. So they slept in their cars, right? 
you know, they would just have that, like that nap in the afternoon or something yes. that would sort of center them and bring them back to their sanity. Yep. So was there a rise in, in predatory behavior because of the pandemic? Do you think? I think that it was more frequent because people were home, stuck home with each other. Um, so if you already are in an abusive situation and you're stuck home with each other and the kids are home and you're, you know, you're, you lose your job. So there's financial pressure and, and, and there's increased substance abuse because people couldn't cope and people were getting sick. And, and I mean, everything was so heightened that, yeah, I think there was an absolutely an increase. I mean, I know there were, there was an increase in it. Um, but I also think what happened was there were probably new cases as well because people were really pushed to their limit with, you know, most people don't have great coping skills, you know, and, and we just kind of are so an automatic pilot. And so when things hit us, you know, we kind of, we don't know what to do. And I think, um, I think you saw a lot of marriages fall apart. You saw a lot of relationships fall apart. Um, I think because of that reason, I think everybody was just, just overloaded, really just overloaded. And I think that there was, and then also add in substance abuse, right. And add in the increase of substance abuse that occurred, um, because everybody was stressed and that automatically increases the risk for domestic violence. I'm not a huge drinker. Well, I don't drink anymore, but I just wasn't a huge drinker. And during that time, I feel like I was drinking too frequently and alone. And I was like, this is weird to be alone. During that time, did you see a loss in clients at all? So what was extremely interesting, this is purely anecdotal, but I had spoken to a bunch of therapists who experienced the same thing. And I found this fascinating. So I saw a, yes, a short answer. Yes. I saw a rise in clients. Um, I saw a rise in narcissistic abuse clients later on as the lockdown was lifted and people were allowed out because I think they didn't want to do those types of sessions over zoom when they're home with their significant other or their partner or their parents or whomever. But what I did see was the patients that I saw up to up until the pandemic, I saw a ton of people with generalized anxiety disorder, a ton. Worriers about everything under the sun. And what was fascinating was when the pandemic started, the patients that decided to take a break were my patients with generalized anxiety disorder and my patients who had like your run-of-the-mill anxiety, just kind of like you checked in for therapy just to kind of, you know, keep their coping strategies going, nothing significant going on. They were the ones that increased therapy and patients actually, I saw more patients who had never experienced anxiety before. And I think the reason for that after kind of talking to colleagues about this was with generalized anxiety disorder, you're worrying about things that don't exist. Your worry is just so irrational and you know that, right? But when the pandemic hit, it was almost as if their anxiety now had somewhere to go. They actually now had somewhere to put it on because it was real and it made sense. Um, whereas people who didn't have, it was almost like they were professionals already about dealing with a pandemic. Whereas people that didn't ever have anxiety, who didn't ever have to really learn strategies on how to deal with anxiety at that level, they didn't know what to do with themselves. Their symptoms were through the roof. They were the patients that I was getting, which I, I thought was really kind of ironic, but you know, in retrospect, it makes a lot of sense. The introverts were like celebrating. <laughs> yes, 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 absolutely. They're like, oh, I don't have any pressures to go right. anywhere. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> this is amazing. Yes, 
Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, and I, 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 you know, I think and you're right because when, when the, when things started, you know, quote, getting on a home normal, we're ever going to be able getting back to whatever sense of normalcy we had. Um, a lot of my patients are like, I don't want it. You know, I don't want anyone getting sick, but I don't want to go back out. This was great. Like I could work from home in sweatpants. I had an excuse not to go out. You know, I didn't have to see anybody. I could, I could be selective. Um, you know, so I, I definitely saw that. I think it was, it was a benefit for some people who wanted to stay home. Not that the pandemic was, but the, you know, the social conditions. No, for sure. I remember I was just excited about like the, there's no, I live in Los Angeles. So there's like no traffic. Uh, I'm like, wait, I just went from Santa Monica and the beach to Burbank in 25 minutes. Unheard of. Because right? no one was on the freeway. Right. I thought this is insane yeah. to me. Yeah. Uh, I was also going crazy though, because I'm a very extroverted social person. And yeah. it's completely changed me now. Whereas yes. like, I don't like to leave my yeah. area. I mean, yeah. now I'm like, oh, I got to go deal with this. I got to, mm, uh, you know, I kind of go through a wave of, of emotions. Whereas before. It's like an effort now. But I will, I will. The other thing I think that happened though, is it's also the time when the, when the lockdown first happened, I did see an increase of people that yeah. left the relationships. It was almost like that was the final straw. Like even my, I mean, I can talk about this now, but even my, my dearest friend, as soon as the lockdown happened, pulls into my driveway, had to go look at apartments, couldn't, could not. The thought of being in her house with her abusive partner was, it was unfathomable for her. And that was kind of the last straw for her. And I saw a lot of people who, when that happens, that was the final straw. They were out. And that was kind of the push that they needed because it, 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 it wasn't sustainable. Yeah. And I hate that people ask this one question, but I feel like sometimes people have to know it. Well, the question is, why don't you just leave? Oh, I hate that question. I, right? I hate yeah. it, but I feel like some people have to have an answer for that. Yeah, sure. Because they have to be like, oh, it helps them to leave sometimes as well. So I think, listen, I think it's a very valid question for people that haven't gone through that um, I don't, it's a very valid question. So I can't fault anyone for saying it. I think from my standpoint, I, it, it's like, I just hear it so frequently. And I hear my, the people that I work with are constantly having to ask a question and it makes them feel worse than they already do. So I think it's said sometimes with good intentions, just a lack of understanding. Um, so there's a couple of things. One, as you guys know, you know, any type of emotional abuse, particularly narcissistic abuse changes your brain chemistry. So you literally are not thinking rationally, but not because you're not capable of it, not because you're psychotic, not because you're crazy, but because your actual brain chemistry has shifted. It's changed, right? Yeah. Um, and then in addition to that, you have been manipulated for years into truly believing that you don't exist in this world, nor can you exist in this world, unless this person is dictating to you every aspect of your identity. Right. All of people that will finally come out of these relationships and say something so basic, like, I don't even know what flavor ice cream I like. I don't even know what my taste in music is. I was told what to listen to. I don't know what side of the bed I like to sleep on. Like they sound so small, but they're such major parts of your identity. And so they have none of that. And so sometimes the thought of having to reset your entire identity into this big, just mold of uncertainty is a hell of a lot scarier for people than staying, right? And so you have to kind of respect that and do it slowly with them because it's it's extremely scary. Um, and also, you know, they have no financial 
you know, access. A lot of times they're blocked from their finances. They don't know where their money is. They don't know bank account uh, passwords. Um, they may not have been able to work. My friend wasn't allowed to work. She was an attorney from Penn. She wasn't allowed to work. And so when they, when he left, she had no money, right? So she, it was very hard for her to leave. So there's that. There's also when you leave an abusive relationship, that is the highest time for violence, right? That's when you're most at risk for violence. And so it's also extremely scary because they will threaten to take your children. They will threaten to drag you through court. They will threaten to tell everybody that you have mental health problems, that you're a drug addict. And because they have smeared your character now for so long and they have isolated you from other people, you have no support. No one knows you anymore. And so why wouldn't they believe this person who's so charming to everyone? So there's so many variables in terms of why people don't leave. It's just, listen, it's not easy to leave a healthy relationship, right? I mean, no relationship is easy to leave, but this one, it's not only is it not easy, but it's dangerous. And I, that's the part I don't think people, um, I don't think people under, understand that fully. I'm just listening to all this and I'm literally re replaying all these scenarios in my mind. And it's funny because one of the things we're working on with this podcast is call you're not talking as much. <laughs> I'm literally playing this out in my, like when you said the the flavor of the ice cream and, and the which side. Yeah. These are things that just people do, you do not think about. No. If you, if somebody has such control, you don't even realize how much control these people have. And you feel like you're going absolutely crazy. crazy. Well, that's the other thing. They make you think you're crazy. So you depend on them to define your reality. You know, it's kind of like in the beginning, you'll see those slow things like, oh, you know, you know, your friend, Jamie, I mean, I know, I know you've been friends with her for 30 years, but there's just, I don't know. There's something about her. I can't put my finger on it. There's nothing about Jamie. Jamie's totally fine, but they slowly start to, you know, your mom calls a lot. Does she always have that much control over you? You're, you're all right with that? These little tiny things over time. And before you know, I, I compare it to a leaky faucet. This is how I describe it to my patients. It's like a drippy faucet that's like no big deal, whatever. It's annoying. Stuff. But then before you know it, your entire kitchen's flooded. You're standing there going like, how the hell did I get here? This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Hey, Tara, as you know, I've been going back to therapy and I absolutely love it. You've been going back to therapy too, right? Oh yeah. I went back to therapy and I went back to BetterHelp as well. Did you really? And how's that working out for you? I love it because there's so many therapists to choose from on there. Whatever you need, you could just go through a list. I went through a list the other day, just seeing what they had to offer. There was one with PTSD. There's so many great therapists. I mean, I believe there's over 30,000 different therapists that are on their app and you can communicate with them with video conferencing. You can do messages and communicate with your therapist. It's a very personalized experience, which I really love. Oh yes. I texted with a therapist the other day and I'm never tried that out before and I was like oh because I was typing it out with her processing through it and usually I get angry when I type stuff out but I was like oh I was able to process it and work through it in a new way and you know what in a season of giving what better gift than to give yourself the gift of therapy in the season of giving give yourself what you need with better help Visit BetterHelp.com slash Survivor today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Survivor. And you're trying to just swim your way to the surface before you can even get out of the house. And, and that's really what happens. It's you don't even know how controlled you are. You, you really don't. I mean, literally, I had somebody say to me, I don't know 
what side of the bed I like to sleep on. And it was absolutely heartbreaking for me. Heartbreaking to, to not know what kind of me- like, if you think about, I mean, for me, at least, I don't know, like music's such a huge part of my, I don't know, my, my, who I am, I guess, and, and movies and, and, and to not know my taste in that is such a huge part of your identity. I can't even imagine coming out of that and not knowing that there's so many tiny things. So what time do I really want to get up in the morning? Like, do I really like pizza or do I not like pizza? I was told I like pizza. So I ate pizza. I mean, it's, it's everything. Yeah. I even remember this one time I was not dating this guy anymore, but we were still in a limbo effect. And I saw him make out with my friend, right? Like, probably like 200 yards away. And then I asked her about it and they both told me, no, that didn't happen. And I was like, okay, did it really happen? Right. And they're just that good. They're that good. Plus they're charming to everybody else. So it's like unfathomable that they could be that way because they're, well, they're great to me. I never had a problem with them. Right. And that's why so many people enable them. And then you see this like uprising of like their character and then people are like oh my gosh they're so great and you're like no they're not and if we don't call it out if we don't if we keep having them on these platforms then we're just keep lifting them up yep how do people that are not in the relationship enable these people what are some of the ways that they do this that these people feed off this energy so oftentimes the people outside of the relationship are so on they don't they don't know they're enabling them. That's the problem. And so, you know, once they realize what they're like, that's a whole different situation. But oftentimes the people around them, they have no idea that this is going on because they're so charming. So they enable them by telling, you know, wanting to be around them or, um, you know, wanting to be in communication with them, or they enable them by agreeing with them about the non-abusive partner being the problem. Right. You know, they enable them by saying, you know, well, it, to the non-abusive partner, well, you know, it looks like they're really trying. Maybe you guys should work it out or, well, it's your mom, you know, or, but, but it's your dad. And so they enable them in that way. They, they enable them also by, and by doing all that, it helps keep the non-abusive partner in that isolation zone. It helps keep them constantly unsure of themselves. Right. So it's like, it, it's, they use people around them for a purpose, right? So if you look at who surrounds a narcissist, right? They have like an army of people and every person in their 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 army has a distinct purpose. And so they enable them by giving them whatever it is that the narcissist needs at any given moment. When they don't need something from that person, they don't exist in a sense. They're kind of interchangeable objects. So just by getting what they need from them, they're enabling them, but they may not even... They don't. The problem is they don't even realize it most of the time, and so that's that's the issue. Um, it's it's almost you know it's without malicious intent in a way. Once they realize what this person's like, or in a lot of situations, it, let's say it's somebody close to someone who's a narcissist, and they see the way they are in every relationship that they have, but yet they don't do anything about it, and they just go along with it, and no one warns the new partner, which is a whole other thing, and they keep maintaining the same type of friendship, that's a different type of enabler. Um, that's, that's when, that's when it becomes problematic because they know how the person is, but they don't do anything to 
separate from them. Okay. Say if someone, I'll just give an example I was in. Say I was on a podcast and then they had on my abuser a couple weeks or something later. And you told them like, hey, that's my abuser. And they responded like, okay, well, we can't really be in charge of like who's on, who's not on and like everyone's issue with everyone. Like how would you personally think to support someone in this situation? I think any platform you give a narcissist is enabling them, whether it's a podcast, whether it's a courtroom, whether it's Instagram, whether it's, you know, just a dinner with friends. I mean, anytime there's people there to listen, that's fuel for them. So I think just the platform itself is enabling. Honestly, it depends on your relationship with the podcaster. You know, if it's somebody that understands what you went through and is close with you, then I, I think it's okay to have an issue with that. And, and they should be more supportive if it's somebody who's wants their numbers and who wants ratings and who has sponsors and cares more about that, then that's what they may do. Yeah. I think this is the issue that we deal with as survivors and, you know, having perpetrators out there. I mean, I think, I think it's our responsibility as people who treat people with trauma and treat people in these situations and host podcasts to probably not have the abuser of somebody who's they're going to be interviewing. I think that's, that sounds a little conflict of interest Is that a word? <laughs> conflict of interest <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> there are people that obviously when a relationship separates and there's obviously the narcissist and then there's the, the victim, right? The, obviously p- two different people separate, right? Uh, and one chooses one side, one chooses the other. Is the person who, who chooses the side of the narcissist, are, what if they're not aware that that person is a narcissist? What if they just think it's like, you know, a lot of people are like, look, guys, I don't want to get in the middle of this. That's exactly right. Should you be excoriating those people who are still taking their defense or saying, well, look, he was a great guy to me. I, I don't know what this is about, but I got to move on. Yeah. I hear that all the time from people, you know, well, they never did anything to me, you know, or... um you know, I'm staying out of this. It's not my business. And I hate both of those answers. I'm going to be honest. Now, I can't, I understand it's a difficult situation, right? And I think a lot of times people don't truly understand what someone with narcissistic personality disorder is because the word has been thrown around left and right and has been completely watered down and used inappropriately, which is, again, is a whole different, whole different issue. But um, I, I, I think that people typically avoid conflict. They don't want to get involved. And here's the problem though. If they know that the person, maybe they don't have a term for it, but they know that the person's difficult. They know that the person, um, claws come out when they try to disagree with them. And so they know that they walk on eggshells with this person in their eyes. It's going to be easier to just go with the flow because they don't want to deal. And by going with the flow, they're enabling the narcissist because the narcissist now knows they're getting reinforced for, you know, crappy behavior, harmful behavior, toxic behavior. And yet people are still just going to go along with the flow. So, you know, I think standing up to a narcissist, right, is extremely difficult, even if it's a friend, because they're going to do to them exactly what they've seen them do to everybody else. They're going to smear your character. They're going to make your life hell. They're, you know, so I think it's very difficult for people to leave as friends. And I actually don't think we talk about that enough. 
Um, they're also going to do a lot to keep you close. They're going to reward you for being, you know, we hear the term flying monkeys, the people that do their dirty work for them. They're going to reward you for that. They're going to make you feel special. You're the closest friend they've ever had. They could never trust anyone like this. You know everything about them. They're going to buy you things. They're going to suck you back in. Um, you know, they're going to make it worth, quote, worth your while. Um, and I think it's hard to leave those relationships just like it is in any other type of narcissistic, you know, um, dynamic. I think it's it's difficult. Well, now I learned what a flying monkey was. Oh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> you know, technically from the Wizard of Oz, how she said that. I was going to say, I thought monkeys. it was the Wizard of Oz. Yeah. So they send out their flying monkeys to do their dirty work for them so that everybody's running circles, doing all this damage and work while the narcissist is kind of just in the middle. I didn't do it. It wasn't me. Yeah. You see that a lot in cults. Yes. Okay. So where is the silver lining in all this? Like, where is the hope? Because this all sounds very, very bleak. I know. But I know. when someone, but when someone comes to you in this relationship yes. and they say, Dr. Jamie, I need help. Yes. What is a plan of action look like? Yeah. So I think it varies based on the type of relationship. Is it a parent? Is it a significant other? And I also think it varies depending on where they're at in the stage. Are they in the relationship? Are they one foot out the door? Are they on the other side and they're out of the relationship, but they're still dealing with the post-separation abuse? So one of the things that is probably the most reward, at least I know for me, I say this very, you know, I understand this is a horrible situation for people to be in, but one of the most rewarding things I think in all of this work is they will get to a point. They always get to this point. And that's what I tell people. That's kind of the silver lining of this is that, but let me hold that for a second. They get to this point where they have this almost epiphany moment where they realize like, holy shit. Oh my God. I know exactly what they're going to do next. And they start to realize that there is very distinct blueprint and they start to be able to predict the behavior a mile away. And that is so empowering for people because now they can start to be proactive. They can start to set boundaries ahead of time. They realize that now that they figure this out, they're in control. They realize now that they're separate from the narcissist. There's objectivity. They don't have control over them. And when they realize that that control is not there, that emotion, they may still have financial control and, and things like that. But when they realize that emotional and cognitive control was manufactured and isn't real, they have this moment, again, this holy shit moment where once you see it, you can never unsee it. And that is kind of the, the silver lining in this is that once you see those patterns, it's almost like, I swear, I always say there's like a microchip implanted because no matter how subtle and nuanced these behaviors are, they're exactly the same across the board with every narcissist. And so it's just manifested maybe differently, but the behaviors are, are really, really similar. And so they have that moment. And from that point on, the narcissist starts to lose more control and more control and more control and more control. And that is the turning point for them. And so that's what I tell them in the beginning that at some point you will hit that mark. I know it doesn't feel like that, but I promise you, you will. And then once you hit that mark, that's when we start to separate you more and more and more and start to work on you and kind of figuring out who you are, who you want to be and figuring out what your identity is now. And I tell people, listen, there's no getting over this. There's no getting past this. This has changed you as a human being. This experience has changed you. And so who you become from this point forward, we have to carry that with us, right? And in, kind of incorporate it rather than like dragging it alongside of you, like, a, you know, like a rock that's just this, you have to kind of 
carry it instead of dragging it. And so that's what I work with people on. Um, the silver lining is that truly once you see it, you can never unsee it and you will start to spot this stuff in a lot of your relationships over time, new relationships. And it's, I think it's one of the best, one of the best defenses against getting into another type of, of similar relationship. Okay. I also have to ask, how do you decipher between that gut feeling and past trauma that may be making you think that this person is having a red flag? Yes. Great question. So I hear that a lot when people get out of abusive relationships and they start dating again, they'll see red flags everywhere and they have no idea if it's really a red flag or they're being hypervigilant. Um, and so what I tell people is your body and brain are kind of doing exactly what they're supposed to be doing. You've been through a trauma, so your body's on high alert, right? Everything is heightened. Your immune system, your, you know, your nervous system, everything is heightened for good reason. So your body's doing what it's supposed to be doing, right? And you'd rather be doing that than the opposite. So I start with that. That is a positive. That means everything's working the way it should be working. And then what you do in therapy is you slowly start to bring them towards the middle and, you know, look at these red flags and say, okay, what may be a red flag in this relationship may not have been in that one, right? And so you start to, sorry, you start to identify what you think the red flag is, and then you break it down. Whereas before with red flags, there was no identifying it. You just went from zero to 60. And before you know it, you're in this relationship because it goes, it's like a tidal wave. Now you can go very slowly and you can look at these things. Are they red flags? Are they not red flags? Is it not a red flag, but instead it's a deal breaker or it's a boundary for me? I think a lot of times people are very confused between what a boundary is. And we just saw this recently with Jonah Hill. What is a boundary? What is a rule? What is a red flag? You know, and, and those kind of things. Because the truth is any of us, me, you, anybody is susceptible to missing the red flags in the beginning stages of a relationship with a narcissist. doesn't matter how much info you have. So you kind of really have to look as you go on once you have that hypervigilance. I look at that almost as like a gift in terms of identifying the red flags and then let's break them apart rather than ignoring them and then having to work backwards. Yeah. Kind of like a built-in safety measure, but it's like currently right now it has like extra childproof locks on it. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. <laughs> so uh, something that you mentioned earlier that I picked up on was you said you were referencing a friend. A friend of yours had come to you, the pandemic, I, I got to get, uh, they were obviously in this type of relationship. Yeah. That's something, I mean, I'm sure that you didn't sit by with idle hands and just not say anything. I'm sure you were like, hey, and this is somebody that's close to you. This is the line of work that you do. Yeah. How difficult is it for people to break these bonds? Like this is something she has a specialist next door or wherever, like at her disposal and yeah. still can't get through. So it shows that all of us can be so susceptible to this. Yeah. How do you, you know, without being hyperbolic or hypervigilant or yeah. living in a constant state of paranoia, yeah. how do you guard, what are ways to guard yourself knowing how cunning these people are? Having been through it already? No, let's say that you've never had this experience before. So I look at this as preventative medicine. And I swear, I like, I always say this, this is the kind of crap that should be taught in schools. This is the kind of stuff that needs to be taught in schools, emotion regulation, mindfulness, how to identify abusive behavior ahead of time. I mean, this is the stuff that I think would save us 
you know, a lot of issues down the road in a our lot, adult A lot of lives. issues, prescription, <laughs> like, prescription drugs, alcohol, right? drug abuse, right. all of it. Like, I wish this stuff was taught. I would have, I would have like saved so much money from my therapy bills. I'm telling you, like I just, <laughs> so I look at it as preventative medicine. It, it truly, when it comes to narcissist, let me talk about narcissistic abuse separately because it is a separate thing altogether. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're dealing with narcissistic abuse, doesn't matter how smart you are. Doesn't matter how successful you are. Doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter if you have a degree in psychology or not. Anyone is susceptible to it. And the reason for that is because one, it feels really freaking good in the beginning. Okay. You have really deep conversation. You have a really deep connection. You are convinced, you somehow convince yourself that it's not, it's not love bombing. It's, it just works really well. You have amazing sex and everything is just amazing. And you're like, all right, well, if it is love bombing, I'll, I'll deal with it later. But right now it's really good. And I mean, I can't, I can't fault you for that. A lot of relationships are, are, you know, kind of blah. And if you get into this thing and it's amazing, I, I understand that. But I think when you get to that point, I always tell people this, once you're in it, if you're not sure, you want to test the waters without being, as you said, so hypervigilant and paranoid, try to set a boundary early on and see what happens. Cancel plans with them last minute. Say you're sick. If they're really into you and it's healthy, they'll say, okay, no problem. Let me know if you need anything. Let's reschedule when you feel better. A narcissist isn't going to do that. Or if you don't text them back right away, or you, you know, say, even don't say you're sick, you know, I'm just, I'm really busy at work. I, I, you know, see how they respond. Do they yell at you? Do they ignore you for a week to punish you with a silent treatment? Do they post another girl or another guy on Facebook or Instagram right away to show you that they're out on a date because you were busy? See how they respond to things like that. Um, then there's general things. Just ha- for yourself, if they use the word soulmate within the first couple months, run. I don't care how good it is. It doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. They don't know you, right? So I'm sure you're wonderful and I'm sure you're lovely. However, on what are they basing the fact that you're their soulmate? They don't even know what your middle name is. They don't know what food you like. How do, You don't know someone as your soulmate. You know nothing about them. So you have to take a step back from like this Disney fantasy world and ask yourself, does that really make sense? Because once you're already in it, it's really hard to separate. So if they want to introduce you to their children really quickly, you want to ask yourself, okay, but is that healthy for the kids? right? You kind of always want to take an objective stance to it or something like they want to move in really quickly. Yeah, That really make a lot of sense right now, you know, or they need a place to stay, quote, while they look for an apartment, which means they're never going to leave. Those kinds of things. Like, well, don't they have family to ask? Don't they have friends? They've only known me for three weeks. That sounds kind of weird, right? What if you just move fast sometimes? So I think there's nothing wrong with moving fast, However, moving fast is different than a tidal wave. And love bombing is often a tidal wave. It's like this overwhelming, like crash of fantasy, love, soulmate. This is meant to be where yeah, you've been my yeah. whole life. Moving fast is, is different. You're not confessing your undying love for them, but maybe you're seeing them a bunch of times during the week, right? Maybe, um, you know, you're, you are meeting the parents really quickly, but not because you're talking about marriage. So there's, there's, there's variations on it, but generally speaking, love bombing is like sweeps you off your feet. It's like nothing you've ever been through before. You have no explanation for it. It feels otherworldly. Yeah. 
I'm like my new boyfriend or my boyfriend that I've had for almost a year now. He met my mom right away, but it was because she was on his podcast. <laughs> exactly. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And listen, there's cultural variations. Because I was talking to a friend um, who's not from the United States, and they were saying it's totally normal. Like if you go on a date to bring a girl to your house or a guy to your house, like that's there's nothing wrong with that. Where I was like, I would never do that. But but so there's cultural factors, too, that you have to keep in mind. But generally speaking, um, you know, there is, there's a, there's a difference and you can feel the difference. There's a difference between moving fast versus this all consuming, um, can't come up for air, want to lock yourself in a room with them for all of eternity and never see the light of day again type relationship. Yeah. The tidal wave thing is, is overwhelming. Yeah. And it's, it's all, but it also plays into like, you know, if you're not someone that's used to that type of attention, that's great. It feels like this amazing, yes. t- well, tidal wave of yes. just, wow, this is really great. Somebody appreciates yes. for me. And then that's really just the. Exactly. Oh, or what they'll do is, you know, you'll, you'll, they'll make you feel so unbelievably comfortable with them. And so you'll start saying, you know, say, well, tell me, tell me about your family. Well, you know, maybe on another date where it wasn't such a tidal wave, you may not come out and say, well, I don't talk to my dad. You may just say like, oh, well, I'm from, from Philly. You know, I grew up here. You don't really bring, oh, my parents are divorced, but like, that's it. That's where you stop. Right. What a narcissist is, or, you know, someone who's like tries to, to kind of have that control over you early on, they will make you feel really comfortable being vulnerable early on. And so they'll, you'll find yourself saying, well, you know, my, you know, my dad, I haven't spoken to, and my mom had a drug problem and I don't speak to my brother. And they may say, oh my God, I understand that. My, my dad too. No, they didn't. Right. Like, you know, my sibling, oh yeah, me too. No, no, they didn't. And so they, what they do is they gather this information about you and they store it away, store it away until they can use it against you at a later date, you know, and kind of manipulate you by your vulnerabilities. So if you find yourself, even though it feels good, if you find yourself getting into that conversation very early on talking about your deepest, darkest secrets, that's kind of a red flag to reel it back in a little bit. Well, it's like they're building. Well, what I ended up finding out is they're building a dossier. Exactly. For a later, for that's later right. use. Exactly. That's exactly right. That's right. And that's very terrifying. This concludes part one of our two-part episode with Dr. Jamie Zuckerman. Can't wait for part two? Please subscribe to the Survivor Squad Patreon to receive exclusive early access to all episodes. On that note, Survivors, I'm Tara Newell. And I'm Collier Landry. And this is the Survivor Squad Podcast. We'll see you guys. Bye. The Survivor Squad Podcast is made possible by support from listeners just like you. Please subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. And please consider supporting this program by visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash Survivor Squad. 